You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. You know that we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you. One of the reasons we have advertisers that love the Apple Insider Podcast is that they know the show has amazing listeners. Right now, we have a survey that I'd like you to take to help us learn more about our audience. Just go to podsurvey.com insider. The survey will only take five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you like to buy, but it's completely anonymous. Your answers help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and the show. When you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Even if you've taken a podcast listener survey before, I'd like to ask you to take ours and help support the show. Don't forget that you have a chance to win that $100 gift card. Once again, that's podsurvey.com insider. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so that we can keep the show free. Welcome to a very special edition of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and I'm here with Daniel Aaron Dilger, who is attending WWDC in San Francisco. Hi. Hello from San Francisco. <laughs> Welcome. How's it been for you so far? Well, it's a lot of information to... Uh to handle and it's only on day two of the event so far so i've survived this far yeah i I imagine that the sessions are are just one after another with all the new information well the first day is the keynote um which a lot of people have already seen followed by the state of the union address which is a pretty fast-paced and rather long sort of summary of a lot of things that have changed on a more technical level uh, and then throughout the rest of the week, they're detailing a lot what a lot of those of those new things are. And you can't you can't get all the all the information within a week because there's about four three or four different um, sessions always happening c- concurrently. So you kind of have to pick which ones you're interested in, and so it can take s- several weeks worth of watching videos to catch up with all the new things that Apple's releasing. Right. We saw, and, and Apple Insider covered the keynote, uh, and, and you were a part of that coverage. What do you think were the big news stories that came out of that? Uh, the, the, the big news from Apple, that, that as they positioned it, were the three new platforms they have, the new iOS 9. It's coming out. Uh, OS 10, they're calling El Capitan, which is sort of like Leopard became Snow Leopard and, and Mountain Lion, or Lion became Mountain Lion. The idea of sort of a TikTok development cycle of coming out with a bunch of new stuff and then refining all that in the second one. So we're seeing kind of a refinement of Yosemite. And then, of course, uh, Watch OS 2, which the watch has only been out for, was it five weeks? And uh, they've already released a new, kind of a new level of sophistication for it. Um, and then in addition to that, they kind of ended up with Apple Music, which left a lot of people thinking, why did they introduce this at a, at a, music, at a you know, developer event? Because there's not a lot of direct relevance uh, from Apple Music to developers. There's not an API for them to handle. But I think one of the, the main reasons why they emphasized that uh, in front of developers was showing, in part, that Apple's keeping the platform relevant to users. Because if users can get features anywhere, that's watering down the value of the platform and developing specific for iOS. I don't think that's a real problem. And that, that same kind of mindset is 
reflected in the the difference the the new features that they added for other platforms. So, for example, uh, for iOS nine, the kinds of things they changed sort of addressed. Apple always addresses kind of like the weakest parts of their platform, and currently, if if you look at iOS eight and what needs work, there are refinements to stability and performance are probably the weakest links in iOS 8. And then also, of course, um, Google has services that it's promoting for Android. Uh, historically, it's been better maps, particularly with, with support for things like transit directions. And then also uh, what they're calling Google Now initiatives, which they expanded on uh, last week's Google I.O. in terms of trying to come up with more ways to uh, provide information before you even search for it and then also searching within apps. And one thing that's interesting is that Apple is doing a lot of the same things, which um, you can look at it in terms of like Apple's copying Android, but in uh, in the same respect, Android has been copying Google in so many ways unsuccessfully. And when they've not copied Android, or when they've not copied iOS, done things their own original sort of take, those things have been typically less uh, successful. And so, for example, I I wrote about this with Google I.O. A lot of the things that differentiated Android are going away in favor of sort of copying Apple's uh, approach to things. Whereas a lot of the things that Apple has followed Google in are just kind of natural progression things. Uh, Google came out with Google Wallet. Um, They came out several years first. But they, they came out with an implementation that didn't really work for people. It was really kind of geared towards uh, Google's own goals. And it also didn't really benefit uh, banks and people taking payments. So it really kind of fell flat. And what, what we've seen with Apple Pay over just the last few months is that it's being adopted by users and by merchants, and particularly banks, because it's kind of designed as something that benefits everybody else. And Google's or Apple is not making a huge amount of money from Apple Pay, but they're creating an ecosystem that benefits everybody involved. And of course, because Apple makes its money selling products, um, having that strong ecosystem and support by a lot of partners, and of course, end users buying the stuff, um, means that it's helping Apple continue to have the success that they've been experiencing. So overall, with iOS, we're seeing a lot of. Um, similar projects that are going on. So in addition to Apple Pay, they're now expanding that into the renaming Passbook to be Wallet, kind of suggesting the, the more valuable purpose to, to that whole architecture of being able to present information and um, loyalty cards and paying for things without having to carry all these cards in your wallet. Um, it's also become very valuable for passes, and all, all of those kind of features also support on the watch. Um, so that's one kind of area of functionality that I really jumped out to me. And then another one that, that hasn't received a lot of attention is news, which is kind of a revamping of the old newsstand. But it kind of incor- it seems to incorporate um, some of the publishing tools related to iBooks and that initiative to to get publishers to build 
proprietary content for iPads. And what news does is allows both conventional news sources, things like, you know, the New York Times, to produce content that works sort of like an RSS feeder, but it creates a rich environment that is really tailored to iPad. And um, it also opens up the ability for smaller publishers to sign up with Apple. So it's very similar to what they've been doing with iTunes and a number of different um, media categories. Um, and the rather than selling stuff, trying to sell subscriptions, which does not appear to have worked really well for newsstand, um, the focus is on appears to be more more on advertising. So companies that insert their own advertising and keep all the money they get from that, and com- uh, producers that ask Apple to do their advertising for them with iAd get a cut. I think I think it's a seventy percent typical cut. It's that Apple three seventy split. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting. Um, has some potential for because right now a lot of people who do content um, from everyone from big magazines to small town newspapers are having a really hard time monetizing their content. How do you how do you support the effort of real journalism when you're not able to make any money doing it? So I think that's an interesting thing. If they're successful in doing that, um, it may also help smaller publishers like bloggers to be able to publish information and um, support themselves. And of course that also plays into music. That's, that's a very similar thing what they're doing with Apple music is the music industry is sort of reeling from a second wave of people using everything they do for free. We saw it before with Napster and um, Apple's original response to that was say, here's music you can download and you can pay a reasonable amount of money for it and you own it and it's not stealing and you're supporting artists. And the, the sort of second wave of the Napster thing is these companies that are telling artists, Hey, let us have your music. We'll put it out there for free. And then maybe somebody will pay for it. And that's not supporting because there's not enough people that are paying for it. Um, Apple does have some pretty stiff competition in that area from the entrenched companies that are currently doing, um, things like that, ranging from Pandora to radio and um, Spotify. And there's a lot of users that are very happy with the stuff they have. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out, of how many people Apple can convince to come over to its new system. And I think really Apple Music builds a lot upon what's already there. We saw iTunes, um, iTunes Radio sort of implemented some of the ideas, but it wasn't really there. And so what they're adding is uh, sort of a free tier with what they're calling Beats One Radio, mm-hmm. so that you can kind of get a taste of what it's like to have people actually picking your music. Yeah, is that the 24-7 you know, global portion of the uh, Yeah, so that's, that's sort of like a free tier. It's it's You can go and... and um, Sort of get a taste of what what it's like to have somebody picking music for you. You're experiencing radio, and they can offer that for free in the same way that radio has been supported in the past. Um, and then for people willing to pay for it, you can uh, fold in streaming access to a very big catalog of music, which 
Um, the deals haven't been released yet, but it appears that Apple's at least aiming at getting majority of its music catalog available to stream to users for this $10 a month or $15 for a family. So if they can pull that off, that will be, um, could be another kind of industry saving move that mirrors what happened with iTunes in the area of streaming. Is, um, let me ask, just because I'm, I'm curious, is the industry at all afraid of partnering with Apple? You know, is, is there the sense that Apple is too big and that they're concentrating all their eggs in one basket? I think there's a, a concern with that, and you saw it a couple times. For example, um, none of the labels supported DRM, uh, free music, until I believe it was kind of Amazon that they got them to sign it first. With the thinking that if they gave that to Apple, there would be they would have very little leverage, competitive leverage. So they first gave that to other companies, including Amazon, and they weren't able to deliver. I mean, they weren't able to sell it really, uh, as well as Apple had been. So the industry kind of came back to Apple, and there's been kind of a halting kind of conservative um, resistance to do things the way Apple wanted them to do from the music industry and labels and also kind of with television and movies. It took several years for uh, iTunes to get everyone on board. Typically their first partner was Disney because they had a closer affiliation with them. So they kind of had to prove that it worked before other labels get on board. With Apple TV, we've seen sort of a, a shift of that because Apple has proven that it's um, not just trying to take everybody's content and sell it at their, you know, give them nothing. I think Apple's been pretty fair in terms of making deals with labels because that's not Apple's core business. Or a lot of these companies that are selling TV or or whatever either have an ad business or they have, you know, they're, they're trying to make money selling or streaming content. Apple makes all of its money from hardware. I mean, virtually all of its money. And so Apple wants to establish content for its users so that they don't leave. They don't go somewhere else and get a, a, a you know, popular app on Android, for example. And part of, part of the effort at keeping people attached to iOS is having content, uh, not just music and television, things like that, but of course apps, which is what Apple really pioneered, to make iOS valuable to users. And so things like news and music, and I think in the future television is going to have, follow a similar model, are all efforts to uh, keep content available to users. And so Apple can be more fair in their contracts with content providers because that's not where they make all their money. And a number of people have kind of dismissed music saying that there's no possible way it can make you know, a shifting amount of money for Apple compared to how much money it makes from selling iPhones, for example. Sure. But it's kind of interesting. Those same people are also saying that, you know, Google photos is such a great thing. How does Google make money from Google photos? It's giving it away for free. The only possible way they can be making money is, you know, they're gaining, gaining access to people's photos for ad purposes or whatever. But I mean, how much revenue is there in that? So I think it's kind of interesting how the industry and a lot of pundits and analysts are real concerned about Apple not making enough money, which is, you know, the most ironic thing in the world to worry about. 
and at the same time completely uninterested in the amount of money anybody else is making, particularly Google. And if you look at Google's revenues, I mean, most of it comes from ads on the desktop, majority, and the amount of money that they're making from other sources is not increasing rapidly, and yet nobody worries about that. So I think it's kind of silly when people are wringing their hands about whether Apple's going to make huge amounts of money from Apple Music, because Apple's always run iTunes, and all their media stuff is sort of a break-even thing, even when it's making an extra few billions, you know, on accident. Mm-hmm. And, and people are, are sort of this, um, I would say, two-faced about things when it comes to, you know, Amazon and whether or not Amazon's turning a profit as well. Yeah, I mean, Amazon's never made any money. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, but Apple doesn't necessarily have to make a huge profit out of this music business, do they? No, I mean, that's the whole point is that um, they're trying to make content available in a way that uh, has people sticking to iOS. The, the third aspect of the, the music program, uh, the, the new Apple Music, is, um, uh, what do they call it, Connect? Where it's kind of a social media-like presentation of things that artists are putting up, whether it's little videos or photos or writing their thoughts about things. It's an interesting thing for Apple because Apple's typically not been really great at doing uh, social media because so far the the main way to to monetize social media is with ads. And Apple's not primarily an ad company, and they don't really even seem to be very interested in it. And if you look at companies like Facebook, and you know Google's kind of tried to follow that, is they're making their money from advertising creating dossiers of information about the users so they can kind of target them and sell more sophisticated advertising that's targeting an audience more closely. And that's something that Apple is really, especially recently, I mean, it's, it's not brand new, but it's, it's really reached a, a very public point where they're making a, a differentiating themselves from a lot of the rest of Silicon Valley with this ad model that's based on basically treating users' privacy like it doesn't exist. Like if you're on the if you're online, if you're using our products, we have access to everything you do. And for several years, Apple has been speaking up on the in the area of apps, saying app develop, you know restricting what its own app developers can do with users' data. And one of the presentations I went to today was all about privacy. And Apple's put in a series of restrictions that intended to stop app developers and service providers like advertisers from tracking users across ads or across devices and and cataloging everything they do and using that to sell. Because, um, I mean, Apple says it's, it's something that they don't want to do, and you can very uh, cynically look at that and say Apple's using that as a way to sell the fact that they're not good as, you know, they haven't made that their priority. But I think there's also a real value to that in, in standing up for user rights because there's, there's starting to be a trend where people are concerned about how much they're being, how much of their information is being used. And I think the more that people really understand what's actually happening and seeing that they do have a choice, because for a lot of people, there was just a report recently that gained a lot of traction talking about, it was kind of refuting the notion that people are accepting a lack of privacy just to get free services and they're, they're fully supporting this idea of, you know, you get a discount. Yay. I, I don't mind you taking all my information and storing it 
for whatever use indefinitely. Because what they found was the majority of people, like a, a very strong majority of people, <clears throat> between the 50 and 80 percent, were opposed or very opposed to the idea of saying just because somebody gives you a discount means that they can use your data, whether it's a loyalty programmer or whatever. And in particular, um, rejecting the notion that just because you can track me, just because you can put cookies on various websites and see, you know, make sure that I'm the same person when I go here and there and whatever, um, there's a real rejection by that from a lot of people. But I think up until now, there's been sort of a feeling that you know, nothing can be done about it because everyone's doing it. Yeah. And I think that's one reason why Apple's really emphasizing the fact that they're not doing it. So people see that as a differentiating feature. So I think that could be increasingly an issue for companies that are sort of relying upon just using people's data forever. Yeah, I saw a similar study that suggested that, that many people disliked the practice, but also felt kind of hopeless about it. What can you do? Right. And, and being given that option, say, oh, here's something that I care about, and here's the option that allows me to do something about it. Um, I think Apple is certainly benefiting from that um, differentiation because it's, be, it's becoming increasingly apparent. And there's a lot of people that are sort of excusing it and saying, oh, privacy doesn't matter, and you know, um, they're not selling your data. Well, maybe they're not selling your data, but they're collecting a lot of it. And when you're collecting a lot of data, uh, bad things can happen. And it has happened re repeatedly in the past, where if you have a lot of data, the chances of you mishandling it or giving it to the giving access to spies or any, anything um, has created material problems. I know I've had a lot of problems in the past with credit reports. You know, people reporting false information about me or buying things in my name. Um, it's kind of a helpless feeling. But if you have the, if you had an opportunity to pick who is recording information about you and you could pick credit reporting companies that were legitimate and did things in a less shady way, um, I would certainly support that idea. So I think we understand what the benefit is to users for this, this push for greater privacy uh, and, and our listeners will directly benefit from that. But what is the impact on, on the industry and on the developers at the conference? Are, are they receptive to this? Is there a response that, that you've seen that, that says that there are people that are displeased? Well, uh, there are developers who um, are also consumers, you know, and, and they're concerned about it too. Um, at the same time, uh, one of the, Apple is not doing it necessarily to delight developers, but to put developers on notice that um, they need to do this, in part because Apple's going to enforce it, and in part because if you want people to be happy, you have to do things that are in line with their interests. So, I mean, Apple is really um, talking to developers from that standpoint of saying, you know, if you want, if you want to delight users, you have to, to do things that are in line with their values because that's a reflection of what Apple's been doing. Apple doesn't create products that um, solely benefit Apple and other companies at the expense of users. Yeah, I'm hearing this is a consistent theme across the music and the news and, and the privacy that runs through all of these things. So that's, that's one of the things that it's kind of a re recurring theme throughout things. Um, a couple of things that haven't been giving a, given a lot of attention, uh, a big one is metal. Apple now brought, they introduced it last year <clears throat> for iOS, and now they're bringing it to OS X, uh, which is interesting because 
of course, on iOS, uh, Apple has been controlling the GPU. There's only one GPU. Uh, fam- I mean, there's there's generations of technology, but there's it's all PowerVR graphics from imagination that Apple licenses in its chips in iOS devices. Whereas Macs have a combination, you know, some have Intel graphics, some have dedicated NVIDIA graphics, some have AMD uh, graphics. Uh, but Apple has ported um, the the same type of metal technology to work with all, all the different um, GPUs on its Mac line, going back to Macs from about 2012. So m- all the shipping Macs and uh, quite a, a number of years worth of of the installed base will be able to take advantage of much faster graphics that are much more efficient um, and allowing for more interesting games and better experience with uh, graphic applications like Adobe presented. So it's a performance improvement, right? There's uh, lower CPU utilization and faster graphics and old systems you're saying benefit from this too? Yeah. In general, the main benefit is that, um, a system with both a GPU and a CPU, you kind of think of them as having two brains, but it's really the CPU that's feeding the GPU. And under OpenGL, the CPU is doing a lot of extra work in keeping the GPU busy, constantly sending it draw commands. And the main thing that Metal does is um, reduce how much work the CPU has to do to keep the the graphics processor busy. So that allows it to fully more more f- fully utilize the graphics processor. And while also leaving the CPU open to do other things, so it can do more advanced physics, it can do more draw calls, um, so you have either more interesting or more graphic games. And um, the same principle, of course, applies to graphic applications, that you can have more responsive user interface on the same hardware. And faster is always better. Very cool. So we're going to see that in El Capitan, and it's it's basically going to mean that these older machines continue to perform well under the new system. Yeah, and it, um, not only kind of improving the status quo, but also enabling things that weren't possible before. Um, the last Apple kind of showed off a couple apps for iOS previously that allow you to do video editing and you know photo manipulation, just things you you couldn't can't possibly do right now. Uh, especially things like live previews where you're seeing things in real time and then it just makes for a better experience. So it's kind of more powerful in a, in a number of different areas. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the changes for iOS nine and the iPad? Um, yeah. So one of the things Apple did last year, kind of in pre- preparation for iPhone six and six plus that have a different, a different resolution than previous iPhones <clears throat> is introducing features that are more common to Android developers in terms of making the the um, layout more flexible. Uh, a big thing, I mean, kind of a, a primary design goal for Android, because it was kind of designed to support everything, was to stretch the user interface um, to fit any device a, user may, a, a, a vendor could make. So there's a lot more experimentation with different sizes. You know, the joke about Samsung having devices from small phones to big phones to bigger phones to slightly bigger phones to, you know, small tablets to big tablets. You know, it's just like every inch they have a, a product category there where Apple specifically picked two main resolutions for iPad and iPhone and stuck with them. And the biggest jump they made was 
kind of quadrupling the resolution, or I guess you'd say doubling the resolution, um, to create, it, uh, it didn't dramatically shift the ratio or the actual size, because everything just got sharper with, with retina displays. Um, so Apple's kept things a lot more consistent on fewer, fewer devices. That's made it a lot easier for developers to support, but it's also restricted Apple from experimenting more. Because every every new device Apple makes, they have to support now as a different resolution. Um, and last year they introduced the first uh, real tools for making things more flexible, enabling other other sizes and shapes. And um, going forward, the most obvious thing was that they're going to make you know bigger iPhones last year. But going forward, that allows them to do other things. For example, apps that can already um, account for changes in, in how big of a device they're on can also be mixed together on the screen and uh, take advantage of this, the, the same sort of flexibility to support multiple um, interactive apps on the same screen. So that's something that uh, could make um, iPads more useful in terms of differentiating them from a big cell phone. And, and are those technologies for developers things like storyboard and auto layout? Uh, well, well, those were introduced last year. Right. Um, kind of enabling uh, features for storyboard is kind of laying out an app, and then uh, auto layout is allowing you to more easily support different shapes. Um, but a lot of what Apple does is roll out the kind of the bedrock for something and then build on top of it later. And so uh, what they've been showing off now is like built on top of auto layout and that allows you to like on the iPad, uh, what's called slide out. I, I can't think what the uh, words are for them. Is it slide over? I think slide over kind of lets you take a secondary app and pull it off, pull, um, pull it into the display. So you could have, for example, a spreadsheet and you're pulling in your mail messages, for example. Um, and then on devices that can handle it, which is right now the iPad Air 2, you can have a fully, you know, two apps going on at the same time, sharing the screen at any arbitrary point. And that's not something that's never happened before. That's something that Samsung has on their tablets. And I think Microsoft has kind of tried to make that a, a feature of its, of its devices. Um, but it hasn't been a runaway sort of hugely successful thing for anyone, in part because um, I don't believe it's supported in Android as a platform feature. I think it's specific to... It's a Samsung enhancement, isn't it? Part of the Note yeah. series? Yeah, so it's something that they just kind of like tacked on, so it's not something that if you have an Android device, it just works on. Um, so that's kind of limited to Samsung's ecosystem. Um so it kind of remains to be seen. It hasn't been proven anywhere to be like a huge job, but anything that sort of benefits Apple's iPad sales is obviously a good thing. And being able, I mean, it certainly makes it more powerful, especially for enterprise users who are going between tasks. Um, it's kind of a natural uh, evolution of the platform. And again, that's built on the same technology that helps uh, support different screen sizes, also helps you uh, move apps around on the screen. So, 
some of our, our, our listeners and readers have, have talked about the iPad becoming their primary computing device. And do you think that, that this kind of move makes that realistic? Well, it's already realistic for some people. Um, desktop computers, for, for the generation of people that grew up comfortable with desktop computers, like like me, uh, when I'm on an iPad, I feel like it's sort of like a sort of like a fun thing that you can sit on the couch with. But if you want to do real work, you get on your notebook and you can do all kinds of things. But there's a lot of people who have never been really uh, comfortable with computers. And there's a lot of complication and uh, sort of a feeling of if I do the wrong thing, I'm going to lose documents and, you know, I may even mess it up to the point where it doesn't boot up anymore. And I'm going to have to hire a teenager to come fix it for me. So that kind of fear goes away when things are simple enough to where you feel like you can understand, you feel comfortable with it. And I think iPad does that for a lot of people because there's not, you know, infinite options. You can't make a mistake and just like mess it up. It's very resilient. It's very straightforward in what you can do. And yeah, you can't do everything, but that's, that's a good thing for a lot of people. Um, you can look at the same way with cars. I mean, there are vehicles, if, if you know how to operate a skid steer, you know, like a bobcat or something, um, you can do a lot of things that you can't do if you're just sitting in a pickup, you know, with a basic interface of a steering wheel and a brake and a gas. But for the majority of people, operating a complicated device, you know, a complicated vehicle, that if you do the wrong thing, you flip over backward and you could die, is just too much going on. They want something that's, you know, you sit in the car and you, anybody can operate it. And I think that's really what the iPad did for Apple sales. And if you look at how many Macs they sell, now around like five million a quarter, um, which is less than twenty million a year, and they're now selling pretty consistently seventy million iPads a year. So that's a huge jump in the number of computers Apple is selling, because they're selling a computer that's accessible to a much broader audience, and of course it's also cheaper because it's a lower power device. So I think that's kind of an evolution of the trend of how to keep this sort of middle computer, uh, middle computing device, um, still relevant to a huge audience and more powerful without being complicated to the point of being difficult to approach for that audience that it was built for. So I, I wanted to ask you, I was watching the keynote and I saw a lot of cheering when there was news about Swift and, and specifically around Swift and open source. Um, the last time we heard Apple speak about something being open sourced, they mentioned Research Kit. Uh, so I feel like this is becoming sort of a, a theme for them now. Um, do you get the same sense that, that developers are really receptive to Swift, and especially it being open sourced now? Um, I, I just recently saw something where somebody, some pundit, was talking about how Apple's never done open source before, and that's kind of something that Facebook and Google do. Well. The reality Both is know that that's Apple incorrect. Did, yeah, I mean, how, how ridiculous. <clears throat> um, the reason why everybody uses WebKit is because Apple made the web source or the open source browser that everybody now uses, apart from Internet Explorer. Well, I mean, originally, KHTML was, and they made their whole browser available, mm-hmm. the whole WebKit browser. Um, and that benefited a lot of people. It didn't really make Apple money. But it made sure that Nokia was developing a mobile browser in WebKit, and of course Android did. So there was a lot of development focus in 
everybody was using the same code, it you know dramatically benefited the entire industry. And you know, Apple's done that before in a lot of areas. They've they have a lot of tools that are open source, but they're open source to share code and to allow different companies to work on the same type of code, as opposed to each everybody rolling their own things that don't work well or, or are not compatible. Um, in contrast, you see Google doing open source for things that don't materially benefit it, but all of the things that Google does that are valuable are closed source, almost exclusively. And Google's also taken GPL code and kind of turned it into something that really only benefits it. And other vendors have done that too. Motorola was for a long time making Linux phones for the Chinese market that were not open, couldn't access the code on them. So Apple has this kind of reputation among particularly its critics that it doesn't do anything open, but um, the value of opening something like Swift, for example, and the reason why they haven't done it before was because it's been under constant improvement. Um, they're just now getting to the point where it's starting to gel exactly how they want it to be. So I think there's going to be maybe less experimentation, but it's, it's now to a point where it's pretty... Um, it, it's to the point where other people could contribute to it without it just being a huge mess. And so by making it open source, and particularly by porting the code to Linux, so just making it open source is not necessarily useful. Having actual code, if they port a version for Linux, what that does is it makes sure that the generation of people who are working on um, big iron kind of projects, web services are also using Swift as opposed to something else, which is tremendously grand for Apple's platforms. Mm -hmm. If they're using the same, if they're approaching things in the same mindset, using the same language. And so, yeah, that's great. And if Microsoft and uh, Google appropriate it and use it on their own platforms, that's, you know, sort of a benefit to Apple. I mean, in a way, mm-hmm. It benefits them too, but you know the same thing happened with WebKit and with other things that Apple has shared that other people have used. So I don't think it's bad for Apple, and I I don't think it's necessarily bad for other companies. I, some a number of people, you know, kind of Apple critics, have in the past kind of suggested that the reason why Apple did Swift was to have this kind of um, one-way stickiness that would keep people from writing apps on other platforms. But um, Objective C wasn't preventing people from writing on other platforms. It was the business model that is just lacking on, for example, Android and Windows Mobile that's preventing them from having people write applications for their platform. Sure. Now, one of the things that I noticed, and I'm sure you saw it too, was that there is now a Android application that Apple's published to help migrate users from Android devices to iOS devices. There's a lot of people in the world that have Android devices that uh, Apple wants to make it easy to move to iOS. Um, and Google keeps talking about how they're going to make the next billion devices for customers in the third world. They talked a lot about India, which is a big market that isn't isn't quite gotten to the point of being like China, but there's certainly potential there. Um, so with and you know the reason why Google's saying that is because they don't have. They've they've proven over several years to be unable to make money selling premium devices, which they have tried really hard to sell. 
know, they started in 2011 selling tablets that cost more than the iPad. And then they kept making them cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and they still couldn't sell them. And, you know, last year they turned around and tried to make it twice as expensive and couldn't sell that either. So I think they've kind of given up on hardware for, you know, the mainstream affluent markets and are going for, hey, let's let's go in the market that Apple isn't in and sell cheap stuff. Um, so for Apple, having the having tools to upgrade those people in the future to its own platform, ideal. Yeah, and and you know the the past campaigns that I can think of are things like the uh, the Switcher campaign that we saw in like two thousand four, two thousand five, and the um, migration. Uh, what they call the migration tool or. <clears throat> Migration assistant for right. Windows. There was the migration assistant for Windows. There was the Genius Bar program that allowed people to bring their Windows PC in and have the Geniuses migrate it for them. Um, and and also just making tools available, like the uh, iTunes becoming available on Windows. Yeah. As, as not, not data migration, but as a tractor kind of thing. Yeah. So a question is, is what do you think the uptake will be from this latest Android program. Is this going to start a whole new wave of migration? Well, there's already been a lot of migration. I think Apple's making it easier, kind of like reducing a barrier that would prevent people from, you know, having a hesitancy to say, maybe I should get an Android device, maybe I should get an iPhone. It's like, well, here's an app that will move all my stuff over. It makes it just that much easier to do. I mean, Apple has a lot of stats that they don't release, but some of the stuff that they have released, I was actually kind of surprised that so much of their sales for iPhone 6 are coming from Android. A tremendous amount of it. It's not just iPhones. You know, you think it would be this huge cycle of iPhone 4 or 5 users upgrading to the bigger screen. Um, it's actually a very small portion of the iOS install base that's upgraded to the 6. A huge amount of it is coming from Android users who are saying, here's, an, here's a big phone that's also iOS. I wanted the big phone, but here it is, you know, with iOS, I want iOS. So that that's a critical part of Apple's business is selling to dissatisfied Android users. Wild. Well, I, I know you've been very busy and, and you must be tired from all the sessions. I don't want to keep you too long. Let me ask, is I know this is a developer's conference. Um, if you had to summarize what the announcement this conference mean to industry, and also to, to regular users. How would you do that? I think it's really demonstrating that Apple has not just a strategy for um, keeping its platforms relevant, but also a long-term strategy. Because the things Apple's doing are not just like these one-off, like, here's our new thing that we're going to do, and then when it doesn't work out, they're like, oh, wait, here's our totally different thing we're going to do, and then that doesn't work out. Oh, here's our you know completely different strategy. Apple's strategy... In, in, a, in a variety of things has been very incrementally moving along upon a path that in hindsight is very clearly planned out. And you see things, um, a lot of the technology from the watch were released in advance of it so they would, they would be ready by the time the watch came out. Um, and like a lot of, even the things that we were talking about, they're based on things that were released before and now it's being applied in a new direction. And in the developer conference, there's a lot of you know, more technical concepts that are clearly fitting that pattern of we released this or actually a lot of it is we did this in house. Now we're releasing it publicly 
And now this next year, we're releasing it publicly, plus this other layer, layer of functionality on top that allows you to do totally new things. So I think Apple's track record in consistently producing um, actionable improvements to their platforms really gives a lot of confidence to developers who are building for it and shows they have it together, which is, you know, complete difference from where Apple was in the 90s, you know, when they were saying, hey, we're going to do this, and then couldn't really quite pull it off, and hey, we're going to do this other completely different thing that's, you know, kind of a competitor to what we did, what we said we were going to do last, created a lot of, um, it destroyed the confidence of developers, so that, you know, it's like, should we, should we write for this API, or should we wait until, see if anything happens to it, and that was, tremendously terrible for Apple. And so, and in a lot of ways, that's what the rest of the industry is doing. If you look at, I mean, particularly Google, a lot of things that they're rolling out are, are it's just like this strategy that's almost bordering random. So I think just overall, the incremental advancements that Apple is rolling out at a regular pace are changing the perception or, you know, they have changed the perception and are creating more confidence in, in what Apple can do next year and the year after that to make sure that things are um, not only done well, but done correctly. And with regard for things like users' privacy and security and things that we don't see outside in the industry that much. Wow. Thank you so much for, for summarizing that for us. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, where can people find you on the Internet, Dan? I'm writing for Apple Insider, and, of course, I have my Twitter is at Daniel Aaron. Fantastic. Well, I'm Victor Marks, and this has been a special edition of the Apple Insider Podcast. Mm-hmm.